want you to imagine a couple going into a financial advisor's office and they're $150,000 in credit card debt. We'll call them Avon Lake, Al, and Alicia. And so they go into this financial advisor whom they deeply trust and he works out a plan for them to get out of debt within three years. And so they leave the office confidently, knowing that they can get out of their debt. And as they hop into their Acura, Al says to Alicia, you know, Alicia, honey, it's not that I now don't know what I have to do. I just don't want to do it. See, we all know that's true, right? We all know that knowing what to do is rather easy. Finding the heart to do it is a lot more difficult. So we're in this series entitled The Redemption Story, where we've observed over this Lenten season God's redeeming promises among God's people throughout all of human history. And in today's passage, what we really now start to see is the key to life, the key to living the Christian life, the key that helps us live the abundant life he's planned for us. And it answers the problem of knowing what to do, combining it with aligning my life to that knowledge. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31, where we will see, beginning with verse 31, the Old Covenant, then we'll see the New Covenant, and then we will see what difference it makes for our lives. The Old Covenant, the New Covenant, and the difference it makes. First, let's look at the Old Covenant, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. I'm sure by now you've caught on to what we've been doing throughout this Lenten season is looking at the great covenants that God has made with his people. We started with Adam, and then we went to Abraham, and then we went to David, and this week we come to Jeremiah. We've also, we missed, but we covered it 10 years ago in Mosaic, the Mosaic Covenant in the Ten Commandments. Reminding ourselves all on this journey that a covenant is a binding agreement with physical and spiritual consequences to the parties that take this promise. With consequences, blessings for those abiding in that covenant and consequences which the Bible calls curses for not abiding in that covenant. And it's a bond that creates a special kind of relationship. It's a relationship which on the one hand is much more loving and intimate and personal than a mere contract that we have today. On the other hand, it's a relationship far more durable and binding and unconditional than a relationship based on just mere feeling and relationship. It's a mixture of law and love. And so it's a covenant relationship. You can trust the other person because the other person has made a vow. 
Each person has lost a little bit of their independence. Maybe all their independence. Each side has made a promise, and the promise is to be faithful regardless of our circumstances, regardless of the performance of the other party. It's not based on feelings and emotions. It's law and love, and it's this love relationship made more loving and more intimate because it's legally binding. The classic covenant relationship in our world, humanly speaking, is the covenant we have in marriage. And we see this even here, as you notice, in the second half of verse 32, God describes his relationship with God's people on that basis. Verse 32, though I was their husband, he says, God always relates to his people through covenant. We saw it in Adam, that God, even though Adam and Eve blew it and the world's been a downhill spiral ever since, God will not always leave it this way, that one day he will crush the head of the snake and bring human flourishing fully back and restore Eden. We saw in Abraham the covenant where he had the dream of the smoking fire pot going through the sacrifices saying to Abraham I will keep this covenant to you Abraham even if you don't keep it I will keep it for you on your behalf and we saw last week David who desired to build a great temple for the king he said no those plans are too small David I want you to build a kingdom and your kingdom will never pass away. And so we arrive today recognizing after four weeks of this process that God always relates to his people covenantally. And that means that the God of the Bible, the God who is the real God, is not like our culture looks at God, which says God is either a law-demanding, moral, absolute lawgiver, and therefore he lays down the law, and if you don't obey it, I'm going to smite you. Or is the other popular idea of God is God is a God of love, who is completely loving and accepts everybody, no matter how they live their lives, which basically is relativism. Both of those views, whether they're legalism or relativism, are like wet cardboard. It's one-dimensional, and under the circumstances which we find ourselves today will not hold up. God is a covenant-making God by definition. And he's as much a God of law and holiness as he is a God of love and mercy. And he's as much a God of love and mercy as he is a God of law and holiness. He's complex. He's mysterious. And he's all those things together. And that's what a covenant is. And once you wrap your mind around that and you begin to read the Bible, the world starts to make a little sense. You see why the way the world is. And that's significant. It helps you understand the human race. And it helps you understand that this people, this covenantal people, 
couldn't even keep the law. The second half of verse 32, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. They had the covenant, they were people of the covenant, and they couldn't even keep it. We see it on Mount Sinai. There's a terrible, terrifying revelation of the law. And they said, we will obey. And yet, three weeks later, they're dancing the Macarena around the golden calf. And we see this in Paul, where he says in Romans 7, what I want to do, I don't do. And the very thing I don't want to do, that's the very thing I end up doing. And the truth is not in me. See, what happens is God is a covenant. God demands his people to keep it. And we can't. So he brought in a new and better covenant. Verse 33, second point. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Because that's the question when we realize we can't keep it. Is this covenant conditional or unconditional? Is it based on God's love or God's law? And the answer to that is yes. It is conditioned on human obedience. Yes. God became human being in Jesus Christ and fulfilled all the conditions of the covenant so that when you believe in him and trust in him alone, he can be committed to you unconditionally forever. You look at the cross and you suddenly ask the question on the cross, was Jesus dying? Was he fulfilling the law or was he fulfilling love? The answer, yes. The cross, his death showed how important the law was. The law was so important it demanded a perfect sacrifice, which Jesus was, and he laid himself upon the cross. He was honoring justice with the fact that we have to obey God, and he did that on our behalf. And as he did so, he was also fulfilling the love of God. He was making it possible for God to be both just and justifier of those who believe because of the cross. Law and love were completely reconciled. Once we believe wholly on Jesus Christ in our hearts, Law and love are reconciled. You find yourself desirous to obey, to walk in his ways, to walk in his love, to walk in his grace. You see, change of heart comes when we recognize that. We can't manufacture this heart. We think we can. We think we can manufacture it out of fear. I'm just going to teach my kids the law of God, and they're going to fear God, and I'm going to teach them to obey. Well, we know what happens there. That happened on Mount Sinai with God's people. They were terrified, and they were dancing before the calf three weeks later. We see it all kind of strict parenting around us, and what happens is either the kids become even worse than the parents and moral law keepers, or they become complete rebels. We can't manufacture that heart. We think that we can make our prosperity 
If we can pull a person out of poverty and give them all the financial resources and opportunities that they can make it. But, you know, all the money in the world won't change a heart, truly. Even if you sold all your Walmart and Costco stock today, which is you bought it really low, and you make millions, great. Won't change a heart. Or we think we can manufacture a heart by teaching ourselves to be religious. Well, I would remind you that there was no community more religious than the ancient Jews. The Pharisees, which had 637 laws, which they were supposed to obey, no one was as religious as they were, and yet their heart wasn't changed when God incarnate was in front of them. No, my friends, none of these, but only out of a love for all that Jesus has done for us on the cross will give us the new heart. And honestly, the new heart comes as we recognize that. Sometimes you have a new heart and you don't even recognize it at first. And all of a sudden you see the beauty of the cross and you respond. It's on the cross that Jesus gave himself to us. It's on the cross that he became ours. It's on the cross he lost his independence and we ourselves can make ourselves his. So, how does this change us? We see the old covenant. We see Jesus fulfilling that old covenant and us placing our trust fully upon him and we're in right standing before God. How does this all change us really? Well, the first thing I want to suggest is a reboot. A reboot. The whole idea of hitting control, alt, delete on the computer and rebooting it. Starting over. Taking this idea that God is a covenant-keeping God for us. Who fulfilled the law for us out of sheer love and grace for us and let it reboot you to the reality of who he is. And you cannot love what you do not know. Notice in verse 34, he says, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Only the good news of Jesus Christ will help us reboot our conscience. And everyone needs steps to follow, direction to go in this Christian life. Do you know what your direction is? Some of you have said to me, well, you know, I've always done it this way. When I was a kid, I learned X, Y, or Z. And I've lived this way 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. God would say to you, so, you were wrong. You learned wrong. Reboot. Come, follow Jesus with us. When you're a Christian who understands the good news of Jesus dying upon the cross, it reboots all of us. It reboots even the Christian. <laughs> we all need to be rebooted because it means the law is important and sin is wrong. You can't say sin's no big deal. You resist sin with all your might, and when you see Jesus dying upon the cross for you, and he's committed to you, even when you fail, there's no need to despair. His love 
is steadfast and remains. And so we reboot by, verse 34, knowing the Lord. We cannot love what our mind does not know. And so I would suggest spending some time in the Word this Lenten season. If you struggle to read it, listen to it. I sent out the Dwell app link. It's free for the next 60 days. Go. Download it on your smartphone. You can pick cool British accents and they can read to you. It's amazing. Felix is an African. You better obey when Felix reads the Bible to you. It's amazing. Read it. Listen to it. However, you take it in best and let it form you. It's going to take some time. That'll help with the reboot. And commit some time to prayer. Using the prayer book, the morning prayer that we're doing here this morning, and using the midday prayer with us. Just set a rhythm of taking your time to the Lord because your concerns matter to Him. And you will find your affections changed. You will find your desires changing. And it's a lifelong process. That's the first thing. Second thing I would encourage us is to critique the culture in which we live. You know, before this coronavirus hit, the culture was full of anxiety and fear. Everybody seems to be anxious, and the coronavirus has made it worse, hasn't it? Everyone's checking the 24-hour news cycles for the next jolt of our insecurity. Besides their health, Many are afraid of losing their jobs or their personal freedom. Many are gripped by fear of economic collapse, while others are anxious about environmental collapse. Many Christians are fearful of a, the collapse of a thinly veiled Christian order in our culture. Others worship security and are therefore fearful of anyone or anything that leaders or the media are construct as threatening their security. You see, it's all about control. And this is a great opportunity for us to critique the culture and say, you know what, we're not in control, God is. What we're most afraid of losing tells us of what we worship and where we place our trust you see, it's not that people don't believe in God anymore. It's just that it just doesn't matter. And that suggests that there's little knowledge of the God who is. The God to whom a majority, though declining number of fellow Americans, tip their hat to. So the first test of whether we actually are worshiping the real God is fear. While being afraid of all sorts of things is a sign of sanity, these days the fear of God is considered insane, even among some Christian churches or professing Christian churches. So it's not surprising that this God of whom we're talking about here in Jeremiah uh, is really nothing more than a supporting actor in our life movie, and it's rejected. He's a means to the end of our own health, wealth, and happiness. In ordinary conversations, even among Christians, I've noticed we express fear of just about any threat to our well-being, 
meaning stares and eyebrows if we mention fearing God. We worship what we fear most. So for some right now, the fear of catching COVID-19 dominates the headline. Now, of course, people don't worship a virus, but many do worship health and physical and mental well-being. So fear is an index of the object of our worship, the one whom we ultimately place our trust. So personal peace and well-being, political and social utopia, a heaven on earth here and now that we demand. If God can help with that, great. The philosopher William James said that in America, God is not worshipped, he is used. So my friends, that God is with us and in us by his Holy Spirit, changing our hearts, and we now know him, following him, critique the culture, and check who we're truly fearing, because we're called to fear him above all. Check the counterfeit gods that we might have been buying into in our day. Even in our solitary confinement that we find ourselves in now. And last, but certainly not least, in this reboot and critiquing of our culture, I want to encourage us to join God at work around us. You don't have to go out and do ministry for God. God is doing work around you. All we have to do is have our eyes open to see where he is at work and join him in it. Start in your own home with your own family. Asking, how can I help you? Asking dads leading your kids during this time in family worship. We're, we're sending out links to family worship and how you too can worship and Open up the prayer book and do the family prayer time. It's easy and it just helps reboot our lives to the reality of God's grace and love. Next, look at your neighbors. Check in on them. Watch over them. Ask, can I get any, grab anything for you? The reality is this new covenant is glorious. Because our default setting is to say they just don't make them like they used to. They definitely don't make sweatshirts like they used to. 1996 was the last year Champion made a decent sweatshirt. How do I know that? Because this was given to me as a gift by the football team at Westlake High School. I mean, look at this thing. 100% thick cotton it's got a band in the middle so you can throw batting practice. It's amazing. And this is 24 years old and still in great shape because they just don't make them like they used to. As a matter of fact, this one made by Champion is two sweatshirts woven together, built in 1990 and still my favorite sweatshirt of all, one for my coaching days. And yet, this is exactly how we treat the Christian life. I, I can do it my way. They don't do it like they used to. Church has to be this way, not the way I want. Whatever it might be, my friends, the new is much better than the old. It will be glorious. We have a hint of it right now, but down the road in the new heaven, the new earth, 
I won't even need a sweatshirt, and neither will you. It's going to be glorious and abundant life that we can have right now, too, as well. And all of this change of heart can't come on our own strengths. We can't muster it up. We just have to look and cast ourselves at the foot of the cross. If you in any way resonates with you today, I want to encourage you to recognize once and for all that he paid it all. This is a new and better covenant. We heard that in Hebrews. And you may, for a time, change your behavior, but it won't be lasting if you do it on your own strength. Let's do this together now to the end of our days and into eternity. And so therefore, let's ask him to help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great love you've given to us in Jesus, that it is a new and better covenant. We recognize that this covenant is put into our minds and written on our hearts, and that heart is something you give each and every one of us. Lord, give us that heart. Help us to fear only you and you above all so that we would follow you with all our devotion. And yes, like St. Paul, we'll, we'll never truly conquer sin because thanks be to God, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Lord, they build them better than they used to because of what you've done for us in Jesus. And we pray that we would latch on to that reality once and for all. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen.